<laughs> a history of comedy. It's several chats. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several chats. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to another episode of A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast from the University of Kent about the British stand-up comedy archive. In this podcast, we pick one item from the archive and we talk about it in great detail to explore what it tells us about the history and form of stand-up comedy. I'm Ollie Double, this is my colleague Elspeth Miller, and we are very much the Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee of comedy archiving. I totally know who that is. Yes, obviously. get in. <laughs> I uh, don't know why I say obviously. Childhood television, probably. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, it's also it's a, a kind of unusual uh, example in a way because I mean people probably think of them as a double act, but in some ways they weren't a double act at all. Maybe in that uh, you know he was he was famous before Debbie, and then she was. Well, they are a double act, but it's it's interesting how in the world of magic, how it's, you know, there are quite strictly enforced gender roles. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You know, it's generally a, a, a magician. I mean, pro- pro- probably not so much now, but certainly the old-fashioned style of magician would be smartly dressed, often in a dinner suit, and then there'd be the glamorous female assistant and who, who would just, you know, hand him things and sort of hold out her hands for applause and that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this day and age, it's kind of weird when you stop and think about it. Do you know what I mean? Really kind of sexist. You don't often get that sort of magic show on TV anymore, do you? Like, no, and I think the, the kind of magicians that are big now are more like people like Darren Brown or, yeah. or uh, David Blaine, who are much more sort of... It's a very different sort of an image, really. Um, anyway, we're not here to talk about them right now. We're here to talk about this week's object. So what is this week's object? This week's object is a suit and shirt from Harry Hill. A suit and shirt from Harry Hill. It's clothing. Yeah, it's actually, it's our first proper costume item, really, actually. I mean, we've got bits of costume. They're not really costumes. They're more props um, from Mark Thomas's collection. There is a shirt as well, actually. Yeah. Which he wore on stage. I'm not sure if he wore it on stage. But the fact is, this is something that's been worn on stage. Let's take a closer look at it. So you will hear a bit of crinkling here because the items are wrapped in tissue paper. It's acid-free tissue, yep. Acid-free tissue, so it preser- helps I to preserve them. points. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely good archive points there. And uh, so what we have here is a beautifully tailored pinstripe suit with a close, tight pinstripe. It's got lots of detail, um, lovely little extra pocket there. Um, one of the things that I notice is that the lining, how, how would you describe that? Um, shimmery. Shimmery, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a shimmery lining, sort of like two-tone uh, in, a, in sort of pink and blue. So, you know, it captures, depending on how the light strikes the, the angle of the cloth, it, could, it looks either pink or blue with, with a speckle as well on there. You, you can actually tell from the lining that it has been worn and used because you have got a little bit of... A little bit of fraying around the bottom. Uh, But why I like the lining being sensational is because one of Harry Hill's uh, catchphrases is, you like the lining. (laughs) And his lining's amazing. But I like, you know, as as a fan of sort of uh, male vanity, I like the fact that it's got these lovely little extra details, a little extra internal pocket, a little extra pocket on the front. And this is a nice little touch here. What have we got here? 
Oh, he's got his name, like a name label, like you used to have at school, with Harry Hill. Embroidered in a kind of nice curly font as well. Yes, but that's been sewn in with black um, black thread. So you've got Harry Hill in red thread. Yeah. Sewn in black thread. Yeah. And it also has these on, these sort of tags. Yes, we've got um, quite quite a number of dry cleaner tags. So two in the jacket, one in the trousers... Um, I'm not sure of the shirt. I don't think it, the shirt has. Let's These talk very about... Very well-kept suits. Yeah, really well-kept. And I, again, going back to the tailoring, I really like the cut of the trousers. They're quite sort of generous at the top, going down to a slightly tapered leg at the bottom. They're really nice. Um, so the bottom of the legs are, you know, like like a bit like sort of tapered in. But the shirt is significant. Well, how would you describe that? Large collars. <laughs> Yeah, massive collars. Let's start with that. I mean, that's one of his sort of trademark yeah. things, which will... Yeah, I mean, it, 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 classic sort of Harry Hill look is a nice suit with a sort of open neck shirt, but a really gigantic collar. And there we see one, which is presumably specially made. Um, and there's the, the, the mark in there. So it says, I don't know how you pronounce that, Domitakis or something, mm. à Londres. I suppose that's French, I guess, in London. Um, and then the the, the um, cuffs are nice as well. They're kind of um, the kind of cuffs that you'd double over and have cuff links in. It's a really, really nicely tailored shirt again. So one of the things I find interesting about Harry Hill's suit is it's not exactly like the kind of thing you'd see somebody wearing just out in the world. If you saw somebody dressed like that, you'd think, what a nice suit, but a gigantic collar, what's that about? <laughs> it's almost a sort of slightly kind of cartoonish edge to it especially with his sort of shaven head as well and his glasses. Um, it makes him very recognisable, uh, almost like a cartoon character. And in fact, uh, for a period, the, the children's comic The Dandy had a Harry Hill strip on the front and it was ostensibly his comic kind of thing. Yeah, we do have copies of that in the archive, actually. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, copies. I'm, I'm quite interested in that, actually, how uh, over the, over the um, decades comedians have been used as uh, cartoon strip characters. So Woody Allen had one in the 70s, so did Billy Connolly in a Scottish daily newspaper. But you can trace it all the way back to Dan Leno, the music hall comedian. Before really stand-up comedy as we'd recognise it had evolved, there was a short-lived children's comic called Dan Leno's Comic Journal, which had a strip about him in. Also, the great music hall comedian Little Titch, who I'm slightly obsessed with, appeared on the in a strip on a, in a magazine, a children's comic called Merry and Bright. Um, so, yeah, Harry Hill being turned into a comic strip character is, is in a long line. Um, I, I, I once saw Harry perform at, at the Horsebridge Art Centre in, in um, Whitstable, where I live. And uh, he'd been staying nearby, so he walked to the show in full costume. <laughs> and I said, did you get any comments? Because it's like watching a cartoon character walk through the town. And he said, uh, he said, well, no, I just kept my head down. <laughs> but I thought that was a, a bold move. But similarly, along the same lines, I went to see uh, his um, Alien Fun Capsule series being filmed recently. And a couple of days later, I saw him walking through Whitstable. And this guy, who I didn't recognise, fixed my eyes and said, hello, it's me, but just with his eyes kind of thing. He was wearing a really nice coat and a kind of tweed cap. And I was thinking, who is that? I don't know who that is. And it was him. And we had a chat about the show. It was Well, it was kind of embarrassing, but it made me think about 
yeah, obviously I felt like a right dick. <laughs> obviously, I was a complete idiot. But um, but what was interesting about it was, uh, without his glasses, without his trademark costume, I didn't recognise him, even though I'd spoken to him only two days earlier. And I think that's really interesting about the nature of stand-up comedy because, you know, um, part of stand-up is about who you are when you're on stage. And ostensibly, for many co- comics anyway you are the same person on stage and off. You know, you're not playing a character like an actor would. You are the same person. Um, but actually, there's a little bit of a difference there. I've, I've written about costume in my book, Getting the Joke, uh, which has come out in two editions, 2005, 2014. And I've written about various different comics, um, uh, including Mort Saal, who was who's one of my comic heroes, who reinvented stand-up and made it much more personal in America in the 1950s and uh, he wore a kind of suit well not a suit he wore a, a, co- a costume if you like of a white open neck shirt and a sort of red cardigan and the reason he did that well uh, actually I've got a description here a pair of casual slacks an open neck white shirt and a sweater it's a red sweater normally um, and he once explained the reason for his choice which I'm going to quote now the Hungry Eye which was a venue he played that's where he started his career was a seller and it cost a quarter to get in. And I really took the uniform of like a graduate student in Berkeley so I wouldn't look like I took myself seriously. And that's really interesting because it basically meant he was dressing kind of like the audience would be dressing. And it, I think it, 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 it was part of what made his act so different from the stand-up that had happened before in that it was about, I'm an actual person here and I'm being funny by telling you my actual views of the world and I'm like you. And, and it, although, you know, we wouldn't necessarily recognise that as being a fashionable way of dressing now, uh, I think at the time it would have said, it would have marked him out as being part of youth culture or, or, you know, he was a jazz fan and things. And I think it was how jazz fans might have dressed. So was that um, development in the 50s in America similar, the same as the development that happened in the UK in the 70s through the alternative comedy? So, so was there... Was the difference between the alternative comedians and kind of the working men's club style comedy that we might think of, was that a similar kind of... Um... Reinvention? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, basically, we were sort of two decades behind, you know, the Americans. They they, they reinvented comedy with people like Dick Gregory and uh, Lady Bruce, Jonathan Winters, Mort Saul, uh, Nichols and May. Um, and uh, we, we didn't really... I mean, there was some reinvention. Importantly, uh, the folk comedians, people like Jasper Carrot and Billy Connolly, they, I mean, they, they were probably the first because they, you know, they dressed, again, in sort of flares and long hair and facial hair and things like that, you know, rather like the sort of hippie culture of the time. So that was, in a way, the equivalent of Mort Saul. I've got... I brought uh, another uh, excerpt from another book here. This is David Mark's book, Comic Vision, which was originally published in 1989, and it's about American comedy, American TV comedy, but he starts his book, really, with the history of American stand-up. And he uses a really interesting, some really, really interesting phrases about the, the nature of identity in stand-up. He talks about the comedian as a naked self, you know, the idea that, that what you see is what you get. And he talks about, the, he uses a phrase here, self is text. So the idea of, you know, that, that you are the text that, that you perform. And he talks in relation to that about costume. And he says, as a consequence of the stand-up's direct address to the audience, the layerings of person and persona are more difficult to unravel than in representational drama. 
just as an actor wears a costume in a play, a stand-up can present an image by dressing like a beatnik, George Carlin, like a businessman, Bob Hope, like a well-to-do aunt at bar mitzvah, Joan Rivers, or in whatever style or demographic uniform he or she chooses. And uh, just to pick up on the George Carlin thing, I mean, that was a really significant moment in the history of American stand-up when George Carlin went from being a, a much more sort of straightforward, smartly dressed guy to being a guy with long hair, a beard, tie-dye T-shirts and things, and started actively courting that kind of countercultural audience and talking about drugs and politics in a much more sort of subversive way. I know George Carlin from Bill and Ted, though. That's my... That's your way in? <laughs> Yeah. But well, that's interesting, that, because, you know, a lot of really significant comedians have also appeared in things that are, you know, like more mainstreamy kind of films. So, for example, Toy Story, uh, the Toy Story series, Mr. Potato Head was played by the famous insult comic Don Rickles, who voiced, okay. he voiced that character. Also, if you've ever seen the film Elf... Yeah. Right, yeah, well, yeah. Papa Elf is played by Bob Newhart, who did all those brilliant routines um, where he would sort of set up a premise and then sort of, you know, pretend to be a particular character in a particular situation. So um, introducing tobacco to civilization that's one of his famous things. And it's uh, crazy uh, Walter, Ra- it's Walter Raleigh, right? And it's, it, it's pretends to be like they're on the phone to Walter Raleigh. That's the premise. And uh, <laughs> and uh, they go, hey, I've got Nutty Walt on the phone. And then he goes, and he describes, so you hear the guy on the phone and you infer what Walter Raleigh's saying. And you have Walter Raleigh describing what tobacco is. And they're going, and then you said light to it. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I'm not doing it well. Go and listen to the actual routine. But the point is, that amazing guy then went on to, um, to, to play Papa Elf in Elf. So, yeah, that's good. George Carlin, Bill and Ted. Sorry, I've, <laughs> we've got off the costume thing, haven't we? It's yeah, good. no, it's fun. It's a good um, so, so, yeah, um, th- th- so if you, if you want to look at this, this, this set of ideas that was in the David Mark book uh, in terms of British stand-up, you need to go back to the music hall. In music hall, comedians didn't... They weren't like stand-up comedians as we'd recognise them today. There were little bits that were like stand-up, but what they would do is they would sing songs, comic songs in character, and then either between the songs or actually in the middle of the song, they would talk in character to the audience, directly to the audience, and there would be jokes there. And those those bits in the middle of the song, the orchestra would stop playing, and they, and in some cases they would just do a tiny bit of song and then two minutes of material and then maybe one last chorus. So Dan Leno, uh, who I mentioned before, would be somebody who, who used that format very much. And they would, because they were playing in character, they would be dressed up in character and they would go off in between the songs and change into the character for the next song. Uh, but then you started to get like some, like George Roby, for example, would, would often play, you know, um, a character. like a, He would do lots of different characters, but he'd also have this character he would reuse, the Prime Minister of Mirth, who would always dress the same, so a long sort of jacket and a, a bowler hat and kind of big painted-on grease paint eyebrows and I think a reddened nose. And he would say things like, desist from birth, when the audience laughed. Um, I, I've got a quote from my first book here. This, is, this was published in 1997, Stand Up On Being Comedian. And this is about the music hall and variety tradition because music hall sort of morphed into variety theatre and when um, Eric Morecambe was interviewed in 1976 on the radio, he was remembering his time in the 1930s as a child performer. And he said, in those days, it was a northern trait 
that a comic had to be dressed funny to tell everyone that, look, folks, I'm a comic. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, uh, the thing was that comics either dressed in a stupid costume or a weird costume or a funny costume, or they would dress sometimes, if they were, if they were a particular strand of comic, they would dress like in a dinner suit or something, like really, really smart. Um, and then what changed with that was you got uh, a guy called Ted Ray. I've got his book here. Uh, he, he used to have a, um, a fat, long-running uh, radio comedy series called Raise a Laugh. See, Raise a Laugh is a fantastic title. And his, his uh, autobiography was called Raising the Laughs. And there's a great bit here on page 67, which I've quoted in one of my books, but I'm reading it from the original text here. And he talks about the fact that he started out dressing in weird clothes. He dressed as Ned Lowe, as a sort of gypsy violinist, and then he dressed for a time in a kind of like, I think like a white suit and a white lacquered bowler hat. And then he suddenly went, why am I trying to be, a, you know, like a fake character? Why not just come on as myself? And he says, a most extraordinary thing happened. From the moment I made my entrance, I felt a warmth between myself and the audience, a warmth I had never known before. I was one of them. I told my stories casually and intimately as though they were in on the joke. I wore my best lounge suit and as far as my appearance went, I might have just climbed up on the stage from the front row of the stalls. The fact remains, and what a vital fact it was for me, that I got laughs and earned them just by being myself. So you can see that, you know, from quite, you know, even before uh, Mort Saal in 53, mm. there were people who were, who were exploring the idea of really just coming on as an ordinary person the audience could relate to. The difference being that Ted Ray was doing conventional jokes, whereas Mort Saal it was a much more radical thing to do because he was talking about the world from his perspective. And there aren't really jokes as such in there. So this was more kind of the gags. Yeah, this was more gags. If you, I mean, he was really slick, professional kind of comic, really big name as well, Ted Ray. If you listen to archive footage, and he's really good at what he does, but it's really slick and kind of controlled and, and well-performed, and it is, yeah, a series of gags, really. Um, but somebody else in the variety tradition a bit later had a similar idea, Frankie Howard. And I think the main difference between Frankie Howard and Ted Ray uh, was that... Howard had the same sort of idea, I'm going to be just an ordinary person, but whereas Ted Ray's, Ted Ray would rehearse meticulously um, and therefore his, he never like misses a beat. It's not like us talking here where we kind of mess up all the time or stumble over words or whatever. You know, none of that mess of real conversation was in his thing. But with Frankie Howard, it's almost like an exaggerated version of conversational mess. So all that stuff about, oh, no, oh, what was I saying? Yeah, three, my, oh, anyway, misses. You know, it, that's what he explored and he wrote in his autobiography published in 1976 called on the way i lost it he wrote about how he what his approach to costume was and he, he wrote this costume was no great problem there were those who had their gimmicks of dress varying in degree from max miller's outrageously colored plus fours dressing gown and diamonds to tommy trinder's trilby hat uh, otherwise evening dress was fairly standard but i wore an ordinary far from immaculate brown lounge suit since for my act, it was vital to attempt to give the impression that I wasn't one of the cast, but just wandered in from the street. Very similar terms to Ted Ray. As though into a pub or just home from work. And I'd emphasise the calculated amateurishness of my presence and dress with a reference to the rest of the acts on the bill. I'm not with this lot. Oh, no, I'm on my own. Why a brown suit? Because I thought it was a colour that didn't intrude. It's warm and neutral and man in the street anonymous. 
If people did notice my suit or tie, I thought it would mean that they were not concentrating on my face. And he goes on to say he sometimes wore shorts if he was playing summer seasons. And then he goes on to say, one professional critic on the tour attacked me for being unprofessional. This man wears no makeup, doesn't dress, doesn't even take a bow at the end. So yeah, that that again was a kind of was quite a kind of innovative approach, and the same sort of thing. Where a lounge suit was significant because it was what people would wear, like I suppose at work or in the street or or at home even, uh, and not what they dress up to wear. So it wasn't sort of thing that you'd, you'd be used to seeing on the stage. I'm just going to pick up on on Max Miller. So the Max Miller bit. Max Miller was probably the most famous variety comic in the mid-20th century in his career. The highlight of his career, I mean, I suppose he, he, he hit the, you know, he hit fame in the late 1920s and he continued to perform even after the variety theatres really mainly shut down. So his last um, recorded performance, I think, was recorded in 61 or 62 and I think he died in 63. Um, and there's a really interesting excerpt from a book here published by a theatre critic called A. Crooks Ripley. And it's a book called Vaudeville Pattern, published in 1947. And when you read his description of Max Miller's clothes, I think it really reveals something about the nature of Miller's relationship with his audience. Now, Max Miller was famous for being racy. You know, he was called the Cheeky Chappy. That was his Bill Matter. Do you remember what that is? I do, yeah. I've had Bill Matter on the mind today, actually, in another... With my other archive hat on, yeah. Why is that? Um, so we've got a pantomime collection. Right. And I was looking up some um, some bill matter for that. <laughs> the bill matter being the little phrase that's written under the person's name on the programme or poster. Anyway, um, but, but Max Miller was very rude. I mean, it's a lot of double entendre and sort of innuendo. And, and he was known for his daring. And he would play on the idea that the manager was on the side of the stage and... He was ready to come and drag him from the stage if he if he went beyond the line of acceptability, and his costume kind of fitted that idea. Uh, this is A. Crooks Ripley's description of Max Miller. He arrives at the crease as though he were a man come to read the gas meter, by which I suppose he means that he didn't look respectable, except that he wears a Panama and brown and white shoes with red heels. I'm just going to pick up on that. Panama is a hat. Brown and white shoes with red heels. They were often called co-respondent shoes sometimes wrongly referred to as correspondent shoes but it's co-respondent shoes the idea is that it would be the sort of shoes that a co-respondent in a divorce case (laughs) would wear right (laughs) yeah okay so he's already setting the thing red heels as well i mean i'm guessing in the in the 1940s that was pretty racy stuff also his hulk is completely hidden in a polar coat of crushing exotic incongruity so a big fur coat This outer envelope removed, he is seen in the plumage of a rampant carp. Then, after you've had your laugh, your smile becomes frozen and you feel a little stupid if you're honest with yourself because the raiment is extraordinarily exciting and most becoming. And I find that really interesting as... Well, well I do because he said it was like a man coming to read the gas meter, but that sounds very kind of, I don't know, dressed up and kind of... I think I think you're right. I think I think the gas meter is the is the sort of the personality of the man, okay. and then he goes on to describe the because I suppose I suppose he's, he's slightly snobby really because yeah, he's sort of saying snobby, yeah. somebody I mean, yeah, what's wrong with somebody who comes to meet the, read the gas meter? But I, mean, I think the idea is that you know he'd be a bit of a lad and a bit of a bit of a bloke, you know, but 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 not any old bloke because he's dressed like this, and as you say, um, you know what what a weird costume. 
and yeah, he's quite. If you you know Google image search Max Miller because he would wear these these extraordinarily kind of vivid costumes. Even in black and white, you can tell they're vivid, and they're often you know they've got like parrots on them in the cloth in big bold patterns or, or flowers. Normally, actually, they're often very floral. Um, oh yeah, he goes on to say the ga- the garment is an ensemble. The tailoring always following the famed Miller tradition. The decor varying with the whim of the of the profaner, usually a corymbus of flowering hibiscus, gardenia, cow parsley, and anthemis cotula. I don't know if that's rightly pronounced, or stinking mayweed. And so yeah, it, 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 you're floral normally, and it, there'd often be a big kipper tie which is similarly coloured. Um, and then we'd have like, yeah, the trousers would be like plus four, so white socks and then these correspondent shoes. Um, and actually, the British Music Hall Society has one of his suits. And when I went to visit their archive, they let me try it on. Wow. I know, it was amazing. Oh, I'm not sure. With my archive hat on, I would let people try it on. <laughs> I know. I think they have a very, very laissez-faire attitude to archiving, <laughs> unlike they, here. Did they have the correspondent shoes? They didn't have the correspondent well. shoes, but they did have a hat. So, okay. yeah, it was really fun to try on. And was it? I imagine it was quite big on you. It was quite big on me, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the things, that the suit was, this, his suits were generously cut, which at the time, if you think that clothes were cut not generously because of wartime rationing... You know, it's quite interesting. Uh, it, I, from what I remember of it, it looked like um, it looked like it was made from curtaining material, actually. But anyway, what I find interesting about this A. Crooks Ripley account is this is a man writing this description, and yet the the idea of your smile becoming a little becoming fixed, so you feel a bit, a bit stupid because the um, look is so becoming. To me, that sounds like a kind of almost sexual attraction. In fact, he goes on to say later on, Max has physical charm equivalent to that of an attractive woman or, in vulgar terms, sex appeal. And I think that's, I think that's great, actually. I, think that it's, I mean, I don't know what A. Crooks Ripley's sexuality was, but if he was gay and he was writing that, then that's incredibly brave and cool because it was in a time before it was really OK to be gay in legal terms. But if he wasn't, then it was incredibly cool because he was sort of, you know, open to the accusation that he was. And actually, Max Miller was quite interesting because he, he his material normally suggested that he was this very kind of, you know, this Lothario who was always bedding women and things. Uh, but actually, he would also hint occasionally that that he would swing both ways. That he would, so he, you know, he talked about. Um, he used to say, "Oh, so what if I am?" Right, and that was a reference to the idea that maybe he was gay. Um, so, which I think is again, I don't, I don't really know what to make of that because most people would have definitely been horrifically homophobic at the time. Mm. So, why did they find that funny? He was their hero. And can you hear that laughter on recordings? Yeah, absolutely. Their writings about that, like reaction to that. I mean, people did write about it. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure how far back they wrote about that. Certainly, I think by the 70s, people had started writing about that, you know, after his death. But um, I don't know. But certainly there are... Yeah, he was recorded many times in the theatre, actually. And they're great documents. I mean, I highly recommend go, go and find them. They're a bit strange at first because it can be hard to work out why are they laughing at that? But they're great. And you really hear this extraordinarily lively kind of relationship between performer and audience. And certainly when he says things like... So what if I am? They really laugh. And he also had a bit about he was riding side saddle down Brighton Front and people laugh presumably because a side saddle would be for a woman. And then he says, and he goes, and they were laughing. How was I to know it was a city horse? So the joke is that 
that they were laughing because they were he was effeminate on the horse, but he thinks that there was, they were thinking the horse was effeminate was a sissy horse. <laughs> but again, you know, the audience find it super funny. And Frankie Howard, who was gay, would sort of make sort of covert allusions to being gay at times, and people kind of found it funny. And he was very camp as well, of course. But presumably, they, he also in his autobiography suggests that he's straight. And he suggests that there were various women he was going to marry, um, which is, I don't think it was true. Um, but, um, but I find that really interesting that somehow, you know, um, comedians could allude to a kind of gay sexuality, whether it was actually their sexuality or not. And the audience would accept it, mm. would accept them. But they almost certainly wouldn't accept that from their friends or people they knew in, in everyday life, which, I mean, it just must have been absolutely crap being gay at that time. Uh, thank goodness we're, we're today and not then, really. We move on. We've mentioned working men's club comedy. What kind of clothes would you associate with a working men's club comedian? I always think of, um, like, a suited, maybe with a frilly shirt, or like a pink or a blue, like baby blue colour shirt. I don't know why. I've never been to a working men's club, but that's what I would think of. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, go, go well, back... Well, not, and... not a recent working men's club, but yeah. back in, like, the 80s or 70s yeah. or something, yeah. Yeah, I mean, go, go back and look at the footage of The Comedians, uh, which was filmed... Well, it started in 1971, Granada's television, and what they did was a guy called John Fisher, I think it was, uh, basically just went out and got a load of working men's club comedians, booked them to do the, the show. They filmed them in, I think, 20-minute chunks or 25-minute chunks, and then they edited it down, and it became a half-hour TV mm. show on ITV. And it was a huge hit. Yeah. And it was really the first time that somebody had systematically gone to the clubs for comedy, to, you know, to find new comedians. Up to that point, I mean, a lot of the people who were stars in the 70s on TV had actually started in Variety because they, they were of that age. So Tommy Cooper, Morecambe and Wise, and so on. Um, and there had been club comedians had broken into television before that point. So Les Dawson, for example, was already well established by that point. But he went and booked people like Charlie Williams, Bernard Manning, Ken Goodwin, uh, Frank Carson and, and others. And they filmed them in a little studio in, in Manchester, sort of Granada Television, and edited it into the show. And if you watch the archive footage, it's really easy to find. You find it on YouTube, you find cheap DVDs, which I'd recommend. Um, then you can find uh, footage of comedians dressed exactly as you describe: <laughs> dinner suit, frilly shirts, often in baby blue or pink or something like that, dicky bow. Sometimes they wouldn't dress like that. Sometimes it'd just be a suit, a bit like the sort of Frankie Howard or Ted Ray approach, but they would be trying to look fashionable. I can't guarantee that they actually were fashionable at that time. I think even though they might be wearing a kipper tie, it's probably the wrong kipper tie for real hipsters of the, of the age. Um, and then when I was visiting working men's clubs in the 80s, when I was doing my PhD and um, sort of watching comedians there, they would definitely be trying to dress fashionably. They, I didn't see too many dicky bows and frilly shirts at that point. But I have to say, I don't remember anybody walking away and thinking, God, you're really well dressed. Uh, it, was, it was like a sort of crap version of fashion. In my, I mean, yeah, maybe that's me being snobby, but that's as, as, as I remember it. And then we move on to alternative comedy which started in 1979 with the opening of the Comedy Store. And uh, I've got this book here, which is Roger Wilmot and Peter Rosengard. This was the first book to be written about alternative comedy. It was published in 89, to, you know, on the 10th anniversary of alternative comedy. 
And there's a quite an interesting quote here from Keith Allen. Who, There's a lot of post-it notes in your book, Ollie. Gosh, there are it's a, a well-thumbed copy. It's a well-thumbed copy. <laughs> I've read it all the way through several times. But also, it, yeah, it's got loads of, of uh, page markers in for a research project I'm working on. Mm. But that's a bit hush-hush, so <laughs> let's move on. Uh, let's, this is a quote from Keith Allen, who was one of the key early figures. That's what I didn't like about any of these other acts, because none of them were themselves. I would always go up as Keith Allen, not something else. Uh, they would all do it, some in obvious ways, like put on funny voices. And then he goes on to mention another actor I'm not going to mention because it's like what he says is a bit rude. And I don't want to perpetuate his rudeness, frankly. But, he, but anyway, the point is he sort of makes the point that he went on stage and he didn't have this transformation. It was, it, he was very much a naked self, to go back to David Mark's terms. And I think that Keith Allen would go on and perform you know, in just normal clothes. I think occasionally he would be, we would go and perform naked as well, but literally a naked <laughs> self. Uh, I think he had a bit, he had a routine where he'd do a ventriloquist bit and he'd talk about how ventriloquist distracts your attention or, did, you know, by by ma- not making you concentrate on lip movements. And every time he, the dummy talks, he's playing with his genitals. So <laughs> looking at that, not, the, not his <laughs> lip movements. But uh, anyway... Um, so yeah, so so you know, one of the things that happened in alternative comedy was that that idea you could just go in in casual clothes. So somebody like Mark Thomas used to often just go out in like jeans and a t-shirt. That was his look. Although now he's always generally in a like a suit, isn't he, with a waistcoat? Yeah, so, yeah. as befits an older man. I, I like to <laughs> and feel. And he always looks really good. He looks great. Yeah, Mark's a snappy dresser. Yeah, he looks- um, but I mean, you know, some of the other. Uh, early alternative comics did have uh, you know a, a, a distinctive way of dressing so Alexi Sale had that skinhead look not from the very start of alternative comedy but he, he found this look which was like a tight suit emphasising his fatness he used to have a joke about I get my suits from a shop for men with a fuller figure it's called Mr Fat Bastard <laughs> Uh, and, and and he would always have like a, like a particular shirt on and a particular tie with a kind of stripe on it like a skinny tie um, but Jim Barclay was an interesting one. He didn't come up with this costume straight away, uh, but he wore things like a gaudy jacket, a T-shirt with the slogan Loot British printed on it, a hat with a couple of wacky attachments. This, I'm reading from my book, by the way. This is my earlier description. A false nine-inch nail through the head and a set of dealy boppers. So do you remember what dealy boppers were? No, I don't. Sorry. It's a really weird craze from the late 70s, early 80s. It was like a plastic headband with two big springs coming out as if they were sort of like alien antennae and then like balls on the top. So they would basically, as you moved your head, they would sort of like flap about. Okay. So it's to look like an alien. I mean... I think I've seen pictures of him... Yeah. If I think of Jim Barkley, then it would be with some headpiece on. Definitely. And that's Dealey Boppers. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. If you've learned something about pop yeah. culture past, yeah. quite why <laughs> that was a craze, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, the, the 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 alternative comics. Some of them just dressed in very casual clothes. Others dressed up, you know, in in a way that befitted their persona. I think with Jim, it was the idea that. He wanted to play up this idea of being wacky and zany. That was his thing. Oh, wacky, zany, Marxist, Leninist comedian, you know. And uh, and 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 so it, it sort of. I suppose what it does is it offsets the seriousness of the politics in his act and gives him a certain license. And and of course, you know, as as uh, what was once alternative comedy has continued to grow. That was the seeds of the modern British life comedy circuit. A number of interesting performers have come out in terms of clothes. And talking of coming out, Eddie Izzard, when he first became established on the circuit, hadn't come out as transvestite, and he did at a certain point. And sometimes he'll dress, you know, in sort of fairly regular 
men's clothes, sometimes, you know, women's clothes, sometimes with, you know, fake breasts even. Um, and uh, that's, but of course, he's not just doing that for the stage. That's part of his identity as well. Yeah. So that would happen off stage as well. Um, I mean, my own, would you like to know about my own costume Absolutely. choices? Absolutely, I was going to ask you. Superb. Your student days. Right, well, basically, um, when I first started performing, I can't remember what I wore, but, but a big breakthrough for me was in, I think it was 85, it could have been 1986, I did a show at the Exeter Art Centre, I think it might have even been the opening night, uh, it just opened, and they had a cabaret, and um, I, I had two things prepared, a rap and a song on my mandolin, uh, both of which were fairly poor, probably. <laughs> But what happened was, uh, my dad had been on holiday to Germany and he'd bought me some boxer shorts. I'd never heard of boxer shorts before. But he hadn't managed to get any. They were all the, all the craze, apparently, over there. And he, uh, so he, the woman he was staying with made me some boxer shorts, never having met me, right? These ridiculous things that were like this gaudy cloth. They were gigantic as well. And I thought it'd be quite funny to wear them and and then some army boots and a Cub Scout. Well, I've got a picture here. This is the actual show. Wow. You can find this on my website as well if you're interested. So, yeah, these are, <laughs> these are the boxer shorts. Uh, the, yeah, this is scarf. my Yeah, the scarf is my old Cub Scout scarf. Oh, right, sorry, yeah. Not, not tied no, correctly. Was, yeah, it looks more like a, uh, like a bandana. Yeah, I've thing. tied it like a bandana. It would yeah. have been the other way round with a, I think they were called a woggle? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, woggle. Like yeah. A, and it, I think I was in the... The, whichever the you were in a six mm-hmm. a little group that you had your sixer who was in charge of the group and and I think my woggle was blue and I think my brother was in the same cup pack and his was red I think uh, but yeah I had that repurposed I borrowed those Ray-Bans from, from a mate of mine at the time a guy called Joel and uh, yeah that was me and anyway the point is the, the cabaret we'd had a rehearsal that afternoon and I'd been a little bit kind of arrogant because I'd looked at the sketches and routines other people have done and I'd sort of thought oh they don't look that great and actually to be fair they were fine they were absolutely fine they were funny um, and I was just wrong but the point is I walked out dressed like that and I had this ginormous laugh just at how I looked <laughs> Uh, and the thing is, I was very self-conscious at the time. As you can see, I was r- ridiculously skinny and I was really, really self-conscious about how I looked. And that was partly why I did it, I think, to challenge myself. It was like, a, oh, let's see. <laughs> you know, this is going to be a bit scary. Let's give it a try. And it just, you know, it got this phenomenal laugh. And, and as a result of that laugh, I improvised about, I don't know, maybe like 10 minutes of material based on private jokes I had with friends and it just killed and then I went back and did, did, did the next one and it went well as well and that was really the start of me finding my onstage identity and as it went on I, I sort of changed it up a bit so I went to eventually I sort of, I'd wear different things like sometimes tights footless tights you know sometimes I'd wear you know, the sort of jogging bottoms something like that but always with this sort of bare top. And then I would have a, a, a raincoat. I was talking to Tony Allen about it the other day, actually. And he said, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember the first time I saw you, you had the raincoat on and jogging bottoms. <laughs> and uh, like, like a punk gone wrong, like somebody trying to be a punk and failing. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> probably what I was. And then I would I got to a thing where I would come on with the raincoat and then take it off like a like an ironic strip tease. And I would have something written on my chest, like it's a, like, like, pure sex or something yeah ridiculous things or sometimes it would say family entertainer <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and yeah and then I got to a certain point where I just went that's too much I 
that's no that I don't I'm too old for this now and uh, so I, I I changed and and I thought well what happened was I thought I have to have a, something distinctive because I I did a gig I think it was in Leeds at one of the universities in Leeds and I, I, I did a series of four gigs comparing a, a, a night that was programmed by Avalon, big agency and the first headliner for that was Bill Bailey and I'd seen I'd met Bill Bailey before because he was half of a double act called the Rubber Bishops and I'd even seen him work solo before but that was, it was at that point still doing the Rubber Bishops act, it's just his mate was ill so he had to do it by himself but this was the first time I'd seen the Bill Bailey act and he was unbelievably great Absolutely fantastic. And one of the key things I remember was he was wearing uh, like a long sleeve T-shirt with a Bill Bailey logo on it. It was like two Bs back to back, almost like a superhero shirt. (laughs) And I thought, that is absolutely brilliant. I need something like that. So what I did was I would wear a hooded top, which was for a particular gag that I had, and uh, an unpleasant brown suit. I used to refer to it as my shit brown suit. Which I brought, I bought it from a charity shop a couple of years earlier, thinking that looks like a comedian suit. Probably influenced by Frankie Howard, actually. Okay. Uh, that looks like a comedian suit. I'm going to buy it because I'll I'll find a use for that. And that then became my look: this uh, braces, hooded top for a particular gag, the suit jacket, and uh, yeah, I mean, wearing a suit with a hooded top was an unconventional look. But actually, Peter Capaldi does that, mm-hmm. uh, or at least he wears a long sort of tweed coat or you know long sort of formal coat with a with a hoodie now as Doctor Who so with that did you keep that costume through your sort of comparing last laugh days did you have a different look that's a really good question actually when I was comparing the last laugh I used to mainly just wear I think whatever I was wearing that day uh, I think the, the the costume for my act was different mm. Uh, and actually, that, thinking about it, that was probably the wrong decision. It was probably I probably should have worn that to compare because it's it's part of kind of cementing an identity with an audience. Because mm. that's the, I think that's the two things um, that 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 costume does for a comedian. And also, it's interesting. That even the word costume is is slightly controversial because it's not a costume like a like a actor would have. That a costume can be what you wear. You know, if I if I go and do a show now, I often, uh, you know, I'd wear clothes that I wear to to lecture or something like that. Uh, I mean, this jacket, I'd probably I'd probably wear that. Uh, when I did my show, break a leg, I I um I, I had a t shirt, a particular t shirt that I put on, and I and I had a particular jacket. And when I did the photos for the poster, I made sure I had those clothes on, because what I thought was it's the identity of the show. I don't like it if. The comedian has one set of clothes in the uh, poster and a different one on stage. Ross Snow was interesting because he has costumes made for each tour, which have which are certain specifications. So, like you'll have like flared sleeves and things because it it emphasises certain things. And he tends to wear skateboarding shoes because. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's the other thing I found interviewing comedians about what they wear on stage. Uh, footwear came up quite a lot. I think, I think uh, yeah, so, so is it costume, is it not? Well, that's a little bit like, is it a character, is it not? It's part of the inherent ambiguity of stand-up, whereas in straight theatre there's a, quite a clear dividing line between on stage and off. In stand-up, not nearly so much. And for me, I think the two effects that costume have are, one, it's a visual cue for the audience. It sort of gives them an indication of what kind of person this is. And that can work in two ways. It can either reinforce the kind of person you want to come across as, 
or you can actually wrong foot them and come out looking like one thing and actually do something else. So somebody like Sarah Silverman looks quite glam and sort of girly, and then she says these kind of depraved things, and and I think that that's that that's got to be a kind of deliberate strategy. So yeah, it, it, it's a cue for the audience. And then I think the second thing is it's it. it I think that there's something about putting on certain clothes that puts you into a frame of mind. I feel different if I'm dressed down from if I'm dressed up. I feel different if I'm in sports shoes and if I'm in big heavy boots. So I think, you know, the costume helps to put the performer in a frame of mind. But anyway, we've, we seem to have moved a long way from the actual objects in question, which is Harry Hill's suit and shirt. Now, bear in mind the importance of costume in the history of stand-up and, and, you know, as as a sort of part of the craft and art of stand-up comedy, how he came up with this distinctive look of a well-tailored suit and uh, open-neck shirt with a a big collar. We've got an interview here. We've got an interview clip of an interview that I did with him when I was doing the first edition of my book, Getting the Joke. Uh, I interviewed him, I think, in 2004. And we're going to listen to that right now. Edit! I mean, I used to wear a suit. Yeah. I mean, I just used to wear suits, you know, and um, 60s suits and from Oxfam. And then um, I started wearing a tie. It was one of the first gig I did. Yeah. That was just too kind of hot. Yeah. <laughs> Constricting. <laughs> so I took that off and I thought, well, I should make a kind of, if you're in show business, you make a kind of thing of it that you're not wearing a tie. You know, you should, it shouldn't be like, just a bloke without without a tie on. Yeah. You know, so I used to just pull the collar up, really. Yeah. And then people would say, "Oh, you know, that big collar of yours." And I was kind of hunched over. Yeah. So my head was sort of re- recede into the collar. And then, so when people started saying you got that big collar, I used to have I had them made. I started getting them made big. You know. And it and works really well. I mean, it, 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 the the look is brilliant. Because it's instantly recognisable and it sort of fits with what, you, what you're doing somehow. It's just luck, isn't it? It's just that thing of, you know, if it works, keep it in, you know. And yeah. I, I do kind of feel sorry for... I think it's difficult, if you're a comic, to find a look. Because mm. there's so many of us. Sure. And what can you wear? A suit? I mean, Jack D made that kind of the dapper the dapper Don sort of thing, isn't he? He's this kind of yeah. three pieces. I mean, I always thought he looked a bit over... Over kippered up actually, but um, yeah, that's that was his thing, yeah. Um, and you know, Lee Evans, people like that, they, they he wears a suit, isn't he? Sort of, it's a bit small for him. Uh, Alexis Sale wore one which is sort of tight because he's accentuating this fatness, yeah. But what can you wear apart from a a suit, you know? It's yeah, and I always think that kind of jeans and t shirt thing doesn't really, yeah, wash. yeah, it's a bit anonymous apart from anything, it's too anonymous, yeah. yeah. So I was lucky with that, really. Edit. So yeah, that was a, a telephone interview uh, that I did with him, and uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I think I think why it's interesting because I think you know he says it's just luck, but there was a clear thought process behind it. You know that he he he, he well there was a process and and which involved thought. So you know he started off with a tie, but he found it uncomfortable, so he got rid of the tie, and then he thought, well, that doesn't look great. It just looks too casual it doesn't look like it's a, an actual decision so then he made the the collars you know had the collars made big and so it's it's, it's a combination I suppose of trial and error and reflection and thought and has he always because he didn't always perform as Harry Hill did he he did perform under his real name 
Well, I think that when he, I think that when he started on the circuit, he was known as Harry Hall because his name is Matthew Hall. And I think that what happened was there was a pro- well, I don't know actually, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that what happened was there was already a Harry Hall in equity, so he had to change it to Harry Hill. I think. I don't know if that for sure, but I mean, do write in if you if you know or email us. Uh, but but uh, yeah, that's a, cl- a classic thing, you know. That if Equity already had a listed member of, of, mm-hmm. of a name, you had to change your name, even if it was your real name. So I, I've got I've got an old friend Simon, and his name is Simon Crane. When he was an actor and in, in you know got into Equity, he had to change it to Simon Walter because um, yeah, there was already a Simon Crane. So that that's that's the the um, smart business of costume in stand up comedy. But of course, this podcast isn't just about us telling you things. It's also about you getting involved yourself. Get involved! There are many ways that you can get involved, but first you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us. Our email address is standup at kent.ac.uk and standup is all one word, no hyphen. Uh, you can contact us via Twitter. Our handle is at histcompod, or you can contact us via our Facebook page. The first way you can get involved is go onto our online catalogue, pick out an item, and nominate it to us. And we'll talk about nominated objects in future episodes. That's the vanilla version. The chocolate chip version is to come in and visit us um, at Templeman Library um, at the University of Kent. You can look at material for yourself, uh, record a short piece about one of the objects that you've looked at and we'll feature it in a future episode. And the stupidest way of getting involved is record your own cover version of our theme tune and if we like it, we'll use it in a future episode. A History of Comedy and Several Objects is devised and presented by Dr Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hulse.